Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Show wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Thursday, July 23rd. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, Killer Mike from Run the Jewels. Um, I have to say, once this got under our schedule, I was looking forward to it for weeks. Killer Mike, if you don't know, is not only one of the finest rappers of our time, not only part of you know one of the finest hip-hop groups of our time, Run the Jewels, but also is just just an amazing mind, just an amazing mind, has incredible perspective and heart and empathy. And, you know, um, after the killing of George Floyd, he went on uh, television in Atlanta and, and spoke to his hometown about protesting, about, you know, about destruction, about burning. And um, we talk a little bit about that speech, about how he didn't know he was going to do it and, and how he spoke off the cuff. And he talks a lot about protest in this interview. He talks about protest being purely um, the most patriotic thing an American person can do. And, you know, we talk a little bit about Canada's role in this. We talk a little bit about him and his friendship with LP in Run the Jewels as an ideal for society. We talk about Ice Cube. Um, and I really just – I came away learning a lot from talking to him and, and feeling something very deeply. So I, at the end of this interview, I just hope you feel something because I know I certainly did. Uh, Killer Mike coming up in just a second. After that, Lorianne Gibson, who is an unbelievable choreographer. She's worked with the likes of Missy Elliott and Beyonce, even Michael Jackson. And she's being recognized for her work with a prestigious prize, the first one ever given out in honor of uh, uh, excellence in music videos. All right. Show starts now. Hi, welcome to the show. It is Thursday. Take a listen to this. Ooh la la, are we wee? 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 Ooh la la. That's a little run the jewels. The idea of freedom has been a central character in music really since the beginning of time. And in almost every modern struggle for freedom around the world, music has helped to boost and amplify the cause. These two things are so tightly connected, and it's a current that runs especially strong throughout American history. Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, James Brown, NWA, Public Enemy. And it continues on today. If you've been to any kind of protest in the past few years. If you've watched them on TV, you've probably heard a song from my next guest. His name is Killer Mike, and he's one half of the group Run the Jewels, a group that sits right on the cutting edge of the most popular genre of music in the world. And although they wrote their newest album, RTJ4, long before this current moment of global protest, this record still deals with stuff like state violence, media bias, critiques of capitalism, organized religion. And it's become a bit of a soundtrack to this moment. From his home in Atlanta, I reached Killer Mike from Run the Jewels to tell you more. How are you? Tom, how are you? It's good to see you. It's nice to see you as well. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about Run the Jewels 4. I've been a fan of your music for a long time, and we all are here. Um, it's coming out at a time that when we've seen the largest protest movement in really modern American history. What's it been like to release the record at a time like this? 
Well, the largest in about 50, 60 years. I, I'd like to say that uh, America as a country started as a form of protest. So let's always acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. If you would not have had a, a, a bunch of colonists here that was like, you know what? We don't think we should be paying taxes across the water. And we got some free labor. If that, if that didn't happen, um, that form of protest and rebellion against the, the, the crown, then we would not be a country. So protesting is one of the most patriotic things you can do. And whether it was Lucy, um, Lucy Parsons or Eugene Debs 100 years ago, or whether it was Dr. King and um, Andy Young and the late, great Joseph Lowry and Hosea Williams and Ralph David Abernathy, it wasn't for them 60 years ago. And even the, um, the other movements that have come after, if it wasn't for those protests, we wouldn't be here. And where we are right now, in my opinion, is everyone recognizing that we have the same masters, that the same systems that oppress black people mm. oppress after black people are oppressed, poor people and oppress women and oppress immigrants and oppress Asians when it's convenient and oppression. Every other subgroup is oppressed by this. And I think that for the first time um, in our nation's history, what you're seeing is a tapestry of people aligned at one time to resist the system that keeps us separate and by keeping us separate keeps us um, subservient to the state. It feels like an opportune moment then for this record to come out. Yeah, it is because Elle and I represent through our friendship and our brotherhood and our camaraderie, nothing else, no political agenda on it, no social grander social agenda. Just by being friends, we represent the antithesis of the nationalistic atmosphere in our country. And we represent the possibility and the reality that progression is being made because just looking at us as a group, you're looking at what the protests look like in the streets today versus what they've looked like in times before. Which is, which is that LP is, is white from New York, from the North. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you being black from the South. I mean, the Yankee, yes. the Yankee, the Yankee in the, the brave. brave. Yeah. yeah. Yankee in the brave. Absolutely. And, um, you know, L, L being from a, you know, a two-parent household, later his parents were divorced, of course, grew up in New York, um, amongst the skateboard scene where organized sports wasn't as um, coveted, dropped out of high school, went to music engineering school, became a rapper at 17. Yet we're the same age. I, though, grew up with my grandparents in a very conservative atmosphere in the South, mm -hmm. very Christian and God-fearing, very systematic-like, still, you know, born to a teen mother. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I, you know, we're, we're so different on so many different things and yet we're we're a month apart in terms of age and we're just bonded by this this friendship that is embedded in hip-hop and um it is the potential to me of what america could be and should be well what i find interesting about that is not just that it's symbolic but that it's it's counter that it's counter to what a system would want is for you guys to be working yes, together to be friends. absolutely 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 and, and it's not that it's not that it's not possible. It is possible for human beings that are of different tribes or ethnicities or read that book by Seth Golden too. tribes. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Um, it's possible that that we can befriend one another, see each other as human beings, judge each other by the content of our character, form real um, loving and spiritual bonds and friendships that transcend all that's possible. Um, you just got to get out of your house and out of your group and your particular cipher that reinforces um, your ego and actually be human and meet people on that level. And it's the antithesis of what the system wants because the system works as long as people are scared and huddled in tribes. Um, the system can be more effective at manipulating people like a dog does a sheep.
Well, actually, like a human does a dog, does a sheep. So the system is represented um, by the human. The dog oftentimes is represented by the enforcers of law and order. And then we, we are by de facto the sheep. Uh, I want to point out that this record and all of your records are funny. They're like, they're yes. funny. They're, yes. they're <laughs> silly. They're, yes. they're two buddies joking around a lot. And yeah. how do you feel that sometimes that can be, well, sometimes the protest part of the music can, can get a lot of attention as opposed to yeah. the other sides of it? Well, the, the, the jewel runners know because they, they're, you know, we have, we have, um, a community of supporters. I don't say fans because fans turn off when it ain't hot no more. So when your record's not hot, the fans turn off because it's cool. But we have a community of supporters and they get the jokes. Like they literally will take our lyrics, put on memes and humor and laughter and joy are the best counteraction to depression and evil and mm-hmm. anxiety and all the things that are kind of on waiting for you when you turn on the news or you turn on your timeline. It's important that someone reminds you that I'll shoot this poodle if you don't tell me what a goddamn money is, old lady. You know what I'm saying? Can you imagine me and LP robbing a rich aristocrat? She won't give up her safe, and all of a sudden, I point a gun at the poodle. You know what I mean? That is, I own a poodle. You know right, what I'm right, saying? Right, like, okay, good. If someone put a gun on goddamn Gigi, my wife would give them anything they want. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Take him. You can have him. But I, but, but I like what you're saying because I, I think there's like – I think that's just the depth of what humanity really is. You know? Like, yeah. I, I, you know, I was, I was talking to – Michaela Cole about this the other day. I don't know if you've seen I May Destroy You yet, the show on HBO. It's, it's, it's absolutely... I have not yet. I have to... Oh, but she is... I have not seen the show, but my wife and her friends are watching it. She's stunning. But we were talking about how, you know, when you're talking about trauma, any kind of trauma, there's a tendency, whether it's within the media or whether it's art, to focus on the sadness of it. But there's, yes. there's moments of joy in everything. There's moments of levity. There's moments of humor. There's moments when, when your, when your parent is dying, you're laughing and there's moments where you absolutely. laugh, you know, you're absolutely right. At laughter is no cure all, but it's a goddamn good sedative to anger and depression. And, um, there's so many things that are heaped on us unfairly. Well, I, and I'm I, glad that you noticed that in the music because Elle and I are very purposeful, as purposeful as we are in making sure that when we have the opportunity to say something, that we really say something and we really bring it home. I want to talk a little bit about the moments on this record that made me feel like it was um, recorded last week. Take a listen to this. They promise education, but really they give you tests and scores. And they predict in prison population by who's going the lowest. And usually the lowest scores, the poorest, and they look like me. And every day on the evening news, they feed your fear for free. And you so numb, you watch the cops choke out a man like me. Until my voice goes from a shriek to whisper, I can't breathe. And you sit there in the house on couch and watch it on TV. The most you give is a Twitter rant and call it a tragedy. But truly the travesty, you've been robbed of your empathy, replaced it with apathy. I- robbed, robbed of your empathy and replaced with an apathy has been has been on my mind. Before we get to that, I mean, that's that's you for gasping for air, repeating Eric Garner's last words, I can't breathe. The lyric was about Eric, but it's about George Floyd, too, now. It's about so many others. Yeah. So what does that say to you, that, that something you recorded that long ago, again, it, it feels like it could have been recorded the day before I heard it. Yeah. What the, the amazing thing about that is um, I really was running out of air on that line. I oh. put so much passion to the line before it. It cracked. And I said to L, I said, home afterwards, because... L records, he sits and he writes. Like, he'll stay five, six hours in a corner. Yeah, you um, improvise. Yeah, and, and, and mine is, is exactly, it's improvisational. If something hits me mm-hmm. and it kind of just flows through or I push myself, um, 
I love it when it just hits me because I don't have to do no work then. I'm just standing <laughs> there and it comes out. Sure. But other times I have to sit there and I have to, and that line I said, and, and I'll go back and I'll fix and adjust. And, and I was like, I got to fix that line. And El was like, nah. He was like, nah, that's, that's the perfect emotion on that one. On that line and on the line where I rapped about my mother, where I nearly was in tears. He, he kept both of those imperfections. So, so how, how does that feel to know that, you know, in rapping about Eric Garner, um, again, I, I was thinking about George Floyd. Like, I was thinking about yeah. something that could have happened a couple of days well, before. Well, yeah, I mean, not even just that. If you, if you look at my grandparents who were born in 1922 and 1932, you know, most lynchings, um, you know, more lynchings during that period of, of apartheid for blacks than, than, you know, than we can imagine. And the, they were killed by hanging, by, by asphyxiation, by a rope around the neck, by literally taking the breath of the ability to breathe from them. Uh, the technique that police use that kneel on the backs and necks of people is the same technique that's used in foreign countries. It's the same technique that we were just railing against China using for protests. It's the exact same thing. So what it makes me feel is that the truth of the state abusing us and killing us and those that feel empowered by the state is nothing new. It's not yesterday. It's not just Eric Garner. It won't just be the next person tomorrow. Uh, it is a a, a part of the system. Mm. It, is, it, is, it is as brutal as a lion attacking a, a zebra on the Serengeti, but at least a lion attacking a zebra is in the natural course and order of things because it's not going to kill for pleasure. It's not going to kill for greed. It hunts for the particular need that it needs. What we have in a system that allows for black men to be choked and killed to death and women while they yell, scream, and whisper and their voice falls to a whisper saying, I can't breathe, is we have predators that are on a hunt for human life and they're empowered by the state. So it doesn't, um, these things always are. They never have not been for me as a black man in America. And um, in my lifetime, I would like to see that change, but I'm not always hope feel that can happen. Is that why I often see Run the Jewels referred to as running a counterinsurgency? And, and, and what that can mean is that there's, it can mean that you're going up against what we've been taught in history schools or in history books, including here in, in Canada. I mean, Canada is not uh, immune to these conversations around anti-black racism, around police brutality, no, absolutely in particular, anti-indigenous racism and police brutality here. And going up against what television has taught us, does that feel intentional, that sort of iconoclastic nature of the music? Um, I, I, I mean, when you say intentional, do we sit down and say we're going to be counterculture for a generation of people? No. Hip hop is that intuitively. There is, there is. I, I would bet if you did the percentage of hip hop artists that have said or, or or made socially conscious statements within their music or entire songs, we would far outnumber many other mute forms of music. Um, and I think that it's because hip hop is born out of social protest. Africa Bambada, uh, not Africa Bambada. I'm sorry, Cool Hurt. Mm -hmm. Stealing power from the city to, of New York to power a, a sound system that would allow children to have a place to sing, dance, and do art on the street is the most counter thing you can do because you're galvanizing the powers of the state through electricity and you're galvanizing the people to be peaceful and fun and celebrate art and love and talent. That is all. Um, that is innately hip hop. And I think that we care. We care because KRS-One cared. 
We care because the Juice Crew cared. We care because, you know, uh, many of the people we looked up to for Cool Keith cared. We cared because you're supposed to in hip hop. You're supposed to, um, you're so, you, we represent society as it is at that moment. And you're rapping then. Rap is not just a romanticized version of what my life what wants to be. It is what what this shit really is. Mm. And I think that Elle and I do that intuitively because I think that that's just the way we learn. And I think that rap will always do that because rap is general, generally off the concrete or out the mud, figuratively speaking. Well, then pick for me like a particularly formative album that you listened to when you were younger that taught you about the power of of this music about the, about the power of music being able to be about protest to be, to be about social change is there one particular record uh, more than the others that said that one is is really great for me i, I mean if you, anybody who listens to my style you're listening to ice cube um kill at will you're listening to ice cube america's most you're listening to death certificate what did you hear death certificate death certificate in particular death certificate was a brave bold audacious black man a young black man it is dangerous to be a black man now it was more dangerous when I was my son's age, um, who's 18, and it was more dangerous when my father was 18, you know, and my grandfather before him. It is you represent the antithesis of what power in the colonies and countries we live in look like. You represent the ability to overcome at a faster rate than ever given the opportunity to, or in terms of the odds being in your favor. So as a young black male in America, you were admired for the same reasons you were despised. You know, the same reason they'll tell an athlete, shut up and play ball. He had to be intelligent to learn the plays. He had to be intelligent to maneuver his way through whatever it took to get him academically to be on the team. Because you can't play if you can't pass your tests and get good grades. And all of a sudden, when you're used to cheering for him and making sports bets on him, or having his jersey make you lots of money, the minute he says something on the behalf of his people, he should shut up because you fear him for the same reasons you adore him. You adore him because he brings a crowd to the circus for people to make festi festival of and, and have fun and make money off. But the moment that he should decide to organize himself and use that same platform of celebrity, you castigate him and shun him. And that's the lightest of measures. The harshest of measures is when you're a 12-year-old boy singing the police at the bus stop, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And the police decide to teach you a lesson that night. That's mm -hmm. personal experience, you know? <laughs> so it's, um, it's that, 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 that for me, death certificate and ice cube surmise that they show me what a marriage of street knowledge and intellectual knowledge should be. I'm a product of that. I'm a product of a young African-American man from Compton with an audacious rap style that taught me that intelligence is beautiful militancy is beautiful marrying one woman and being with her for life is beautiful making sure your children have a leg up it's beautiful that you can like low riders and you can like high side in the bins is beautiful he taught me that intelligence was the fiercest weapon i had and that my imagination was currency in this market and i still am thankful for him to this day have you got have you got a chance to to say thanks yeah, after Andy gave me an assignment last week. I have to hit him back with some notes. What do you mean? He texts me out of nowhere with, here's an assignment. Give me your opinion on these things. So I got to text him back in a day or two. Do you still kind of pinch yourself there that you're... Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
I imagine if your 12 year old self knew that you would be texting with Ice Cube. I mean, you know. Hey, man, there are times where I, I literally just wish I could go back and just sit on the bed next to that kid, like, hey, man, you should dream bigger because all this shit you're saying is going to work out. You should maybe <laughs> say, I want to be a trillionaire. <laughs> Everything you're saying, kid, is happening. Trust me, you know. If you're just joining us, this is Q. I'm Tom Power. I'm speaking with Keller Mike of Run the Jewels about their new record, RTJ4. It has been pointed out that each of your major releases as a group since 2013 have coincided with these major flashpoints in American history, whether it's the murder of Trayvon Martin, the, the protests in Ferguson, the election of President Donald Trump. Is that something that you you guys picked up on? No, we can't plan that. Not that, you planned, not that you planned it, but you, you recognized no. that. We were... recognized it. We rec- we certainly did. That's when we recognized we're in another dimension. Too. There's another dimension where Run the Jewels is just playing. They're happy as shit. They're playing three to 500 people rooms. They're doing 100 shows a year just to make it. And they're heralded as one of the most slept on groups ever. But in this dimension, it's, 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 it, it amazes us. And we're, uh, I, we're just thankful and gracious. It, but it must be it must be a a different sort of yeah. gratitude. I mean, I, and I don't I don't I hope you know how I don't mean that. I don't mean that you're you're no. you know what I mean that you're thankful for any of these things that happen. But you know, in no. or, it, it it is sad that these that that is that this music is so relevant in many ways. It, you know is, what I mean? it, it yeah. is. It, it's not. But that's you know that's not the only music we make. No, of course, and we've talked about that earlier. Yeah, yeah they're just the, the records that we make that are like that. As I said, these conditions are always. And it's everybody take five seconds to think about that. The conditions that we rap about that resonate with people around pain and suffering and social disorder and how dystopian the state is becoming is always. Now, we have stuff to distract us from it sometimes. We have regular life. We have jobs. We have sports and entertainment. But there are times where the moment is so big that it's always is present to everyone at the same time. This has always happened. It has never stopped. And it won't stop until we decide it stops and we organize in an effective way against it. But I, I feel like less about our timing is, is, is on point that coincides with these particular events as people are willing to be entombed at that time. That's, that's to me the amazing part that we are the people that people choose to be in tune to. Elle and I are black and white. We didn't plan to make a rap group to take advantage of that. We built a pure friendship around rap and we love each other like brothers. We didn't know in Ferguson that would mean something. We didn't understand as I stood on that bus and I told him and my wife, you know, I don't want to do this tonight. I don't want to rap tonight. I don't even want to be in St. Louis next to Ferguson. I don't want to be here. And my wife, saying, you know, you, you, you have to go out. You know, and Elle's like, you don't, you know, I don't, I'm not going to force you to go out and say anything, but my wife's like, you have to. You have a responsibility to, you know, and me getting the chance to go on that stage and say that brought people who look like me and Elle together at a time where the, the moment was ripping them apart. Um, I think there's less about us even knowing what we're doing when we're making a record and more about the universe saying that this friendship, this music, this relationship is bigger than you all know. And here, let me show you. And all you have to do is step into the moment um, with the love, care, and confidence that you do stepping into making these records. Before we go, and we only got about a minute left with you, um, I feel like, you know, looking to the future, Run the Jewels is made up of rappers in their, in their 40s. Do you feel like you have a different relationship with your success, with Run the Jewels' success, 
because it oh, happened because it happened later. Yeah, my ego didn't get to take the whole ride with me. You know, when you're, I have the rapper ego of I want to show up and rap my ass off. But the ego of I need to be the most important person in the room, I need to be the most important person on the song, I need to be, my word should be most important, is gone. Ellen and I met each other at 35 years old. Ellen and I had gotten past the point of needing empty affirmation, and we just wanted to make the dopest shit possible. That's, that's it. Our friendship is based on that. We're forever 15 because of that friendship. You know, we're forever 15. So what I was able to get rid of was, was my need to be a star. Mm. And I traded that for a, a reality of being one half of what I feel is the greatest rap group ever. And that means that my weaknesses are acknowledged and they're made stronger by my partner. And I do the same for him. So my, my understanding of teamwork being what Michael is versus it's just me. You know what I mean? It, it is, it's not me. It is we, it is us. We are balanced. We are, we are two friends on this weird, wild, crazy journey together where we're not supposed to be here. It, it should never have worked. And yet it's working and getting bigger. And, um, and that's what we're going to keep doing it until we march into the rock and roll hall of fame, smelling like marijuana dressed in black denim and night. <laughs> Kevin, Mike, nice to talk to you. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate you, brother. Killer Mike is one half of the hip-hop group Run the Jewels alongside LP. Their newest record is called RTJ4, and it's out everywhere now. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music, with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. So it's 1984. You're sitting around in your leg warmers. Depending on how old you were, you have worries like, I need to get a Cabbage Patch doll or, um, oh, pagers are expensive. And if you were in Canada, this might sound familiar. Tonight, live from coast to coast, the launch of Canada's first 24-hour music channel. The nation's music station, Much Music, featuring... The world video premiere of Rush, The Enemy Within, and The Spoons Tell No Lies. Well, I know I'd stay up for that. 1984 was when the Canadian music channel Much Music was born. Now known as Much, the channel introduced the nation to music videos, which had, of course, the biggest impact on pop culture, pop culture scene in generations. You know, and one element that made music videos so mesmerizing was, of course, dancing. And Laurie Ann Gibson knows how to make that dancing look incredible. She's choreographed videos for Lady Gaga, worked with some of the biggest artists like Alicia Keys and Missy Elliott and Beyonce and Michael Jackson. So 
Every year, the PRISM Prize in Canada hands out awards for the best Canadian music videos. And this year, there's a new prize. It's called the Willie Dunn Award. The award goes to a Canadian trailblazer in the music video production community. And as part of the prize, they get to choose an up-and-coming Canadian artist who will get a $5,000 grant. The winner of the inaugural Willie Dunn Award is with us right now, Ann Gibson. Welcome to the show. Yay. Wow. Thank you for having me. I am so grateful and so, you know, excited because Willie Dunn Award, the prism. I mean, Canada. I was born in Canada. <laughs> this is just come at such an awesome time. Well, yeah. And, and it's for being a, for being a trailblazer. Oh, yes. Because those trails that you got to blaze sometime are unbelievable. So to receive an award with that word, Trailblazer, it, it encourages me. So, let, let, sorry, please, please go ahead. How dare I? No, please go ahead. No, it just encourages me because that's exactly, you know, what I had to do was blaze my own trail. So I want to go down a couple of those trails today. So trail number one, we look at your early days at the National Ballet of Canada. I didn't uh, How long were you there? Not very long because I realized that I was... Uh, not the prototype, right? I also studied at Jack Lemon Dance Studios and I went to Earl Haig, Claude Watson School for the Performing Arts. I also danced in Canada's Wonderland in the Canterbury Theater. <laughs> so I didn't stay there very long because I saw the Alvinelli American Dance Theater at O'Keeffe Center and I said, oh my God, they all look like me. Mm. You know, when I was studying in the school, I was the only black girl and there was a challenge to um, understand my ability and not suppress it. So I had a bigger appetite than um, being a white swan. I'm actually the black swan. So there you go. It's, it's, it's <laughs> interesting to hear you say that, just to know that like the National Ballet of Canada in recent months still struggling with this, still trying to address that and still trying to talk to their black dancers about how they, make, they can make their environment more comfortable for them. It's, it's interesting to hear that even in your early days, you know, how things haven't uh, changed. Right. And I think, you know, um, recently I did a book deal, with, with, which I'm very excited about. But one of the challenges was going back to the beginning, you know, going back to that ballet class where I was told that, you know, uh, my physicality wasn't something that was a plus, you know, it has to do with, you know, the tradition of ballet and it's okay. But yes, again, there's so much more creativity that comes along with the changing of the times mm. that I think once we get into the why and you get into the reasoning behind the tradition of ballet and where it comes from. And it's brilliant. You know, I've studied Russian ballet, you know, Balanchine is an inspiration to me, but Hey, if he was alive and he met me, he might've changed his game up. We don't know. Right. But it's time for that tradition to uh, get a new inspiration, but that's the why, because it's based on um, something so traditional and beautiful at the same time. It's just, we are truly in a different era. So you, you, go to, you go to New York, you study at the Alvin Ailey School of Dance, and I want to start playing some music now that I associate with your work. Take a listen to this. Look like you brought the rain, what a shame. I got the armor or the shine of the same. Old Missy, try to maintain. I can't stand the rain. 
That is Missy Elliott with her song Rain, Super Duper Fly from 1997. So two things. What do you think about when you hear that? And how did you end up choreographing that video? I think about, I start to cry because it was tumultuous, right? But uh, Missy, who is my dear friend and still collaborator to this day, um, it was definitely a, uh, a, a breaking point for me from dancer to choreographer. Uh, and Sylvia Roan, who's now obviously the president of Epic Records, gave me the job. And Missy Elliott, I started working with when she was in a female group called Sista, actually. And then she broke out into her solo career. And I was young, but I was very focused on trusting my instincts. And uh, hip hop was about freedom and liberation, and you could take chances. And that song that Missy wrote was totally against the grain of a pop song to begin with. So the fact that I was able to collaborate on the visual with her and Hype Williams and June Ambrose made sense because I was completely against the grain. I mixed obviously hip hop with tap, with the lines of being trained. And it was one of the first videos that, you know, I began to craft out my style as a, uh, choreographer and visionary. Did you have um did you have a moment after it came out of going, geez, maybe maybe I can do this. In fact, maybe I'm maybe I'm pretty great at it. Maybe maybe there's something exceptional about that, you know? I'll tell you what's interesting. Everyone else called me, including I'll never forget Silver Rome was like, oh my God, you're genius. And I was like, huh? No, I didn't know then. I just knew that I had to get another job. And it <laughs> And Hype Williams at the time was in the height of his career. So he was very difficult, very challenging on that set. And I was very independent um, and from Canada. And I, I I wore that on my sleeve, you know. The Canadian part? Yeah, I wore that I was from Canada. And I, and just the fact that I was different and my different was was apparent at that time. And there was not a lot of Canadians you know, obviously yeah. Drake and Little X and that, you know, we're all at, at the weekend. Yeah. And I always am like, no, I got here first, guys. No, <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a lot of us. So I was definitely an awkward bird, you know. I think there's something <laughs> I think there's something really magical when you're able to not only recognize, but also utilize what makes you different. And when you stop, when you stop, you know, I know there, there, there's a world in which you pretend to be American. Right. But I think there's. The, the world in which you acknowledge that you're Canadian, you figure out what makes it different and you and you utilize that is is an often oftentimes what makes people successful, you know? A hundred percent. I I want to play another song for you. Take a listen to this. Okay. That is Lady Gaga and beautiful Dirty Rich off her debut album. Can you tell me a story about you and Lady Gaga? How'd you guys meet? Um, uh, I got a call from Vincent Herbert. Um, and he said, I was doing Making the Band with Puff Daddy. And he said, uh, or I think it was after our big televised fight, MTV's Making the Band. Mm. And I didn't want to work with him. I was so mad. And I got a call from Vincent. He's like, yo, I got this white girl who just got dropped from two labels. Can you meet her? Oh, I was actually doing Alicia Keys rehearsal and she came in after and she had brown hair. And I was like, is this a joke? I was like, oh, what's happening? And 
then she played me a song and it was actual, it was actually that song, Beautiful Dirty Rich. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing, this music. And I instantly started to dance and choreograph and she instantly started to mimic me identically in the room. And it was like, you know, the opportunity you get when you're a visionary, you find a muse that is so open and trusting to believing in your vision. You know, we clicked right away. I love that song. And it was the first record that I began to craft out the creative opinion, which obviously now you all know as Lady Gaga. How much of what you do is influenced by the artist you're working with and how much of it is your own style? You know, that's a really difficult question and, and, and a great question. And I answer it with all the humility um, to inspire those that carry the same gift that I have or similar abilities. It definitely depends on the artist. Um, in particular with Gaga, it was very much my creativity and my ability to see what's not there, to create movement um, for people that aren't dancers, that to bring an experience to the music. You know, she had been dropped by two labels. They were like, they couldn't see it. They couldn't find it. They couldn't envision it based on her talent. And so a big part of that was all of me, all of my, all of my gifts aligning. Um, and, it, and again, it's different with every artist. But it sounds to me like if you look at Missy Elliott, you know, you weren't, we're not talking about the Get Your Freak On era of Missy Elliott. We're talking about her starting out. And we're, we're talking about that in the same way we're talking about Lady Gaga. I, it sounds like you might find inspiration in people who are, who are trying to find themselves or trying to find their style. I mean, it took me a while to understand what was very particular about my gift. And it's like a record producer, songwriter, like to develop and define and to actually pull out of an artist what is most authentic to them, create the experience so that it can become, you know, part of their opinion, their brand, their manifesto, how they wear being an artist or a superstar is definitely what I do, you know, and I'm proud. I do it well. I break superstars. And that is a conversation that took a while for the industry to really respect and, and understand. But yeah, it's a special gift. My guest today is Canadian choreographer Laurieann Gibson, who's just received the Willie Dunn Award for the, from the Prism Prize Organization in recognition of her trailblazing career in the music video industry. And Laurieann, there's a, there's a version of this interview where we only talk about your successes, but I also think it's, it's important when you talk to creative people to talk about moments that have felt a bit more challenging. You know, I, I, I think it's easy to, for people to think about Nicki Minaj and, and Britney Spears and all these big moments, but can you tell me about a time you might have felt like giving up and what it got you through it? Ah, uh, I think, um, you know, giving up is a conversation that uh, comes, you know, every, not every day anymore, but in the beginning, you know, um, being from Canada, being in the United States, um, it was a challenge when I refused to fit in, you know? So I wanted to give up very early, but I just had a passion that was more powerful than my circumstance. 
you know, was more powerful than people not liking me because I didn't play by their rules, because I wasn't willing to adjust what was best for an artist just to maintain the job. You know, I stood on standard and I stood with uh, trusting the create creative process. And so every time you face adversity, yeah, there's an option to give up. But my passion ran too deep and it created a perseverance that um, I don't ever think about giving up. So let's talk about, let's talk a little bit more about trailblazing. And, and I think the coolest thing about this award for me is, yes, it recognizes your work, but you also are given the opportunity to mentor. You're given the opportunity to select an up-and-coming Canadian in the field to receive five grand. And you made your decision. You're going to tell us now who's getting the mentorship. Who's it going to be? Well, it was a little bit difficult. So that's just to say how amazingly talented our fellow, my fellow Canadians are in the video world. And I'm just so excited. There's so much talent. But the winner is Noor Khan. Noor Khan. What made you land on Noor Khan? Um, this video was so creative. It was cinematic in a where in a, it was not only cinematic, it was extremely creative. This is a, this is a Sean Leon video? Yes. Do, do you remember what, what song it is or what video it is? Or? Um, 90 BPM. Okay. So good. The lighting, it was one location. The editing was brilliant. The cinematography, um, the direction, it felt uh, cinematic to me. I'm a sucker for film. I'm a sucker for a, a, a long shot. I don't like, you know, a lot of quick technical edits. I like to feel. And it was just so innovative because it still had the nostalgia of great cinematography, but yet uh, competitive in today's market. Um, so we got in touch with Nora earlier today, and she spoke first about how great it was to get this grant, <laughs> just about how good the timing was to get this grant, but like, especially during this pandemic when creative work is so fragile. But she had a question for you, and okay. we recorded her asking you the question. Um, take a listen to this. How do you differentiate between ego work and work that's empowering um, or justice oriented? Um, because a lot of work, especially with choreography or centering a recording artist, because I feel like a lot of the times when we're working with recording artists, um, it could be focused on their egos <laughs> rather than um, something something larger um, or an issue that, that is larger than themselves. So how do you recognize when it is it is something um, more important than just one person? And then if not, how do you use your um, your position to make it something larger than just um, them? You know, it's, 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 Nora, I hear you loud and clear, right? And um, she's tapping into something that can make or break a project, right? And in my opinion, the ego is never going to allow greatness to manifest. Because the idea of art and the collaboration is a flow, you know, and once ego steps in, it blocks a flow because you're actually in that moment creating something based on where you are, elements that you're dealing with, timing, where we are in the world. All those things matter in that moment. And as the visionary, you have to make the choices that will produce that original content that will shift 
Lady Gaga's career that will define I Can't Stand the Rain. You have to fight. And, you know, I had a big fight on I Can't Stand the Rain. You, 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 you tend to face the ego all the time. But very early in my career, I decided what type of brand I wanted to be, what type of visionary I wanted to be. And I did not feel comfortable in those positions where uh, the artist or the client was driven by ego. I would always continue to write um, a concept that would either almost like, you know, be hubris and maybe they don't get it. So you can flip it on them, but I would not adjust my approach and surrender my creativity to the ego. Those type of jobs I just would not take, or I have definitely come up against them and had to fight for my vision to go through. And in my cases, the times that I fought, I won. And the times that I lost, I was either let go or left the job. It is it is the story talking to you today from telling me the story of, you know, looking at the National Ballet and saying, well, there's no one here that looks like me, finding your home in New York, fighting to be recognized in the music video circles, you know, fighting uh, to, to get the work that you wanted to get made, made and now trying to encourage other people to fight along the way, like your, your resilience and your persistence and your, your bravery is, is really apparent to me. And congratulations on, on your awards. Very well-deserved. Oh, wow. Thank you. That is so encouraging. And you are so awesome. Um, I'm just really grateful. And like you say, at a time like this, where you want to be able to continue to persevere, this is a really special moment. So thank you. Lorianne Gibson just won the Willie Dunn Award for her work as a choreographer and an artistic director in the music video industry. You can watch the Prison Prize's virtual award show online tonight at 8 Eastern. Just head to prisonprize.com. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Talia Schlanger will be with you. I'm sort of bummed. I feel like I say this every week. I'm sort of bummed about it because... No, sorry. I'm not bummed that Talia's going to be here because she's a great host who's going to do a great job. I'm bummed because I don't get to do some of these interviews because I really like doing them. And I always look forward to the Canada Reads winner. Whoever wins Canada Reads coming in and talking about their book and and why they advocated for said book. But Talia's going to do a great job. I'm going to have a nap. (laughs) I'm going to have a morning nap is what I'm going to do. Uh, We'll see you on Monday. All right. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.